See, this is the real secret of life. To be completely engaged with what you're doing in the here and now. And instead of calling it work, realize this is play. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective Australia. I'm Jim Dooner. And I'm Mac Lyon. We're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. This week I'm joined by Richard Game, who is a physiotherapist, performance coach and functional medicine practitioner based here in Brisbane. Throughout the episode, we explore the differences between conventional or allopathic medicine and functional medicine, the concept of an evolutionary approach to health and how it relates to things like nutrition, movement and sunlight exposure. We also discuss the role of environmental and cultural changes for promoting public health, along with the importance of individuals making educated and empowered choices. This week's episode is brought to you by the TFC Soulmate, your ultimate all-in-one restoration and exploration tool. Made from cork, TFC Soulmates are an eco-friendly, lightweight and durable mobility, balance and foot training tool. This nifty piece of kit can be used as a massage roller for releasing tight muscles, a mini foot roller for the best darn foot rub you can imagine, a balance beam for endless play and even a slant board for incline and decline training. It also includes two toe resistance bands to help get those stiff tootsies stretching. Every TFC Soulmate comes with an in-depth online training system designed by TFC health professionals with more than 50 exercises and a fully structured program to ensure you get the most out of it. The Soulmate Training System 2.0 has just launched with a heap of new ways for you to move and play. Your Soulmate really is the perfect companion to mobilize your toes, feet and ankles, strengthen your lower body, improve balance, posture and alignment, and prevent and rehab common foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, bunions, ankle sprains, Achilles tendonitis, and so much more. Every order also helps Reforest Australia by planting one tree. To celebrate the relaunch of our podcast, we are now offering free shipping Australia-wide for all Soulmate and Soulmate kits. To learn more, head to tfc-shopaus.com. You'll find the link in our show notes. Richard, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. It's been a been a long while coming. We've had uh, pl- plenty of great chats off the air, but stoked to finally have you on the podcast to um, delve into some things that we haven't necessarily delved into completely before. Yep. Um, just have a, a proper recorded chat. Yeah, perfect. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Um, so to kick us off, I usually just like to get guests to give a brief intro for everyone listening about pretty much who you are, what you do, why you do it, that kind of thing, and we can just sure. go from there. Yep, sounds good. Yep, so my name's Richard. Um, if you can't tell from the accent, I'm Canadian. <laughs> so yeah, coming across, living in Australia now, which has been great. Uh, I've got quite a yeah, varied background, I guess. Coming from sport, most of my young career, again, being Canadian, mostly hockey, um, always involved in sport, activity, performance. So naturally, just sort of fell into trying to figure out ways to always optimize my performance and optimize my health. So that started a lot on the physical side of things, but over time <clears throat> starting to learn more about, you know, more holistic approaches to improving health and performance. So getting into nutrition and then over time learning more about, you know, optimizing sleep, focusing on stress. So very much a more holistic model over time due to those passions, eventually going back to school and going through doing my degrees to become a physio. 
And then while doing that, I was also studying functional medicine because, again, looking at this holistic approach to health, naturally, uh, many people end up finding functional medicine because it really is a very holistic approach and a personalized approach to, I guess, managing people's health end to end. Originally focusing more on chronic aspects, but it can also be utilized to optimize health and optimize performance. So sort of studying these two things all at the same time. Um, yeah, I like to sort of be broad in my approach and then eventually coming to Australia and starting practice here and working with a whole host of people. So you know, I've spent a lot of time working on people across, you know, as I said, chronic issues, especially chronic pain, autoimmune disease, uh, gastrointestinal issues, things like that to even just simply helping people improve their mobility, their performance, uh, a lot of coaching in that space as well. So yeah, I've, I've had quite a journey of working with a lot of different individuals. And I think that's probably one of my strong points is, um, you know, they call them expert generalists. Yeah. So I, I like to learn a lot about a lot of different things. I might not be a specialist in, in one area, but for a vast majority of people, I think having that general holistic approach tends to help yeah, for a vast majority of issues that people are dealing with day to day. Mm, yeah, I think that's so huge because we do have a bit of a culture of specialists, uh, mm -hmm. especially in the traditional sort of healthcare model. And yep. that can come in handy, obviously, for certain things. But like you said, for the, I would, like you said, and I would say the majority of um, common conditions, musculoskeletal conditions, or even digestive or just general health conditions mm. could be prevented um, or even cured from just often just picking some of the lowest hanging fruit yeah. around yeah. all of those pillars of health that you mentioned, sleep and yeah, movement and um, nutrition. So yeah, that's, um, that's quite a background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's sort of just the top level. Yeah. There's, there's a few other things in there that uh, yeah, we can get into in the future maybe, but yeah, yeah that gives a good overview. Yeah. So Functional medicine, you obviously alluded to it there, it's sort of more of like a personalized approach, more of a holistic approach, but also personalized. Yeah, too. so the core of functional medicine that people often talk about is thinking about addressing the root cause. Yeah. So you'll hear that quite often, right? Unfortunately, if we compare to the sort of allopathic model or the conventional medical model, it's fantastic. I'm not going to say anything bad about it. It's great. It's done a really good job for treating um, you know, modern diseases, um, especially things like infections, as we've seen recently. Um, so for things like that, acute infectious disease, it's been great. You know, if you break something, if you need to replace a joint, mm. conventional model is really good. But where it has a bit of a downfall is addressing these multifactorial um, and difficult chronic issues, which are rampant these days, right? So we see mm. an increase in things like obesity and diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative disease. These are the major killers, as well as cancer, obviously, that there is no one cause that we can treat. And the conventional model sort of looks to find a diagnosis of one thing and then provide one treatment. So it doesn't work well for this chronic issue that we see nowadays, which is growing, as I said. So functional medicine really finds its footing in that space because it is holistic and it's focusing on that root cause. And root cause might be many things. So like we said, right, it could be all the aspects of life lifestyle. So we think about the core pillars, sleep, nutrition, movement, um, and stress or stress management, right? Those are often sort of the touted four pillars. So we focus on all of those, but with the context still that it needs to be personalized. Mm. 
mm. because we know everyone is different, right? Whether we're talking about genetics or epigenetics and the environment, a lot of people have had different exposures, different upbringings. So you need to be able to compensate for that person's lifestyle and that person itself to be able to treat them as an individual. And a lot of medicine is not necessarily set up that way. It's, it's set up for you know public health, large amount of people, treat as many as we can um, as easily as possible, which is great. Um, but for a lot of people dealing with these more chronic issues is, is very difficult. So functional medicine really fits in there with that focus on really personalizing and focusing on the root cause of the issue and try to address that opposed to you know just masking symptoms. Yeah, and I guess conventional medicine kind of evolved in a an environment where most of the issues were a bit more sort of short-term life-threatening kind of thing like a mm-hmm. like a, a wound or some kind of accident or an infection or something like that where they just had yep. to literally quickly deal with it and get it under control and then it seems like as our environment has has evolved to cause a lot of like you said these chronic more chronic conditions and um and all of this then conventional medicine has tried to apply that emergency approach to those chronic conditions which just ends up masking it i guess or band-aiding it yeah yeah exactly and it hasn't i mean the statistics show very clearly it just hasn't done a very good job at addressing these these chronic issues so i think eventually medicine will move a bit more into that space overall and the evidence supports a lot of these approaches um, so making sure that you know we're still being evidence-based in what we do but more and more we're learning about the effects of not having enough sleep on overall health right i mentioned neurodegenerative disease there's a ton of literature now showing that you're at an increased risk if you're not sleeping well so i think as a practitioner a doctor whatever you're doing if you're following the evidence Inevitably, we will end up at this process of thinking more holistically as we learn more about the body and learn about how all these different aspects of health affect us in in many different ways. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point to cover is a lot of times when you start getting into this realm of lifestyle change or, um, yeah, it's it's not as much lately, but people start to think of it as alternative or mm. like woo-woo even. Yeah, <laughs> like, yep, yep, hear that all the time. You know, yeah. and it's like, oh, these sort of functional medicine quacks or whatever. And yep. not, not that I don't think, I've never actually heard anyone say that. But oh, I've, I've seen it before. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas when it comes down to it, you are just being evidence-based and keeping up with the most current evidence. Whereas, you know, absolutely, a yeah. lot of, I imagine a lot of practitioners out there maybe just aren't keeping up with that evidence of the the influence of lifestyle and nutrition and these behaviors on these chronic diseases that they're seeing yeah look it's like it's like any industry right you're going to have people who are good about staying up to date and and i guess having integrity in their practice and there's always going to be those people who maybe don't uphold to the same standard so i think in any industry you're going to have those who um, are really good at what they do and those who maybe aren't as good at what they do and whether it's conventional medicine alternative medicine no matter where you're looking i think you'll see a bit of that um, which is something that i think will improve over time but yeah we just have to see how we get into that space but um i wanted to go into another rant from there but i lost my my train of thought well, a little bit. i'm sure we'll find our way back <laughs> yeah. um so you're you're on instagram you're called evolved health yep. and I find the whole aspect of evolutionary health and ancestral health really interesting. And it's actually a big part of how I 
got into this sort of foot space, I suppose. Um, I started, was listening to a lot of podcasts and heard different things about paleo diet and, Mm. you know, this kind of ancestral health concept. And that made sense to me, like eating real food, for example, food that grows out of the ground or, you know, eat stuff on the ground. (laughs) Um, and, or just stuff that is, you know, fresh and seasonal and minimally processed, basically. Like that made sense to me because that is how we've evolved that's the kind of diet we've evolved with and then that kind of took me down the path of well what what kind of movement diet have we evolved Mm. with and what have our feet evolved to how have they evolved to function yep and so i think wherever you start in these you know whatever your window is into this it you will eventually go down the path of like well how have our ancestors lived and therefore what do what do our genes expect to get from our environment and lifestyle um so does that how how much does that relate to functional medicine like evolutionary health i guess it depends where you look there's some people in the space like chris kresser for instance or rob wolf so you mentioned the paleo diet Mm. right rob wolf is one of the sort of early pioneers in that space that did work with Lauren Cordain, who is also one of the sort of forefathers of that paleo movement. So I think you'll see some crossover between functional medicine and evolutionary health or ancestral health, um, but it's not across the board yet. Mm. And I'm not sure why, because as you mentioned, it it makes the most sense, right? It, It seems parsimonious from a scientific perspective in that that's a relatively simple and straightforward answer that this is how we've evolved for millions of years. So it would I guess makes sense that if we wanted to be healthy, we should live in alignment with what our biology has been used to for that period of time. Um, there's always the quote by uh, Theodore Dobzhansky, who is an evolutionary biologist, that says, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. Mm. So I think that sort of hits it on the head, right? Yeah. That true. if we're talking about biology, we're talking about the human body, we're talking about biology and physiology. So yeah, it makes sense that we would follow an evolutionary approach. Perhaps some of the issue is around evolution, right? Because there's a lot of context um, that's been shaped in society over time about, yeah, I guess the context of evolution itself. There's been a lot of influence in religion and and other philosophies and other ideologies that have maybe, yeah, inhibited or or altered people's perceptions of what evolution really is. So that's one component. And maybe Mm. the other component is people not truly understanding how evolution functions and works um, on us as animals, right? We tend to think of all the other animals in the animal kingdom as separate from humans. And we don't tend to apply the same concepts that we would apply to other animals, to ourselves. So if we do that, I think we end up in a better position. But yeah, there's a bit of maybe discordance in people's uh, understanding that we have to overcome. For instance, a lot of people talk about how, you know, the genetics are the cause for obesity and they're, they're blaming their genetics for certain things. But evolution, if we understand, you know, teaches us that that's almost impossible to occur in one or two generations, right? Mm-hmm. Evolution occurs over generations, many generations, uh, at least in a population scale, right? Individuals, maybe there's some changes with each birth, but across an entire population, which is what we're seeing around the world, it's virtually impossible to have that associated with genetic changes, which means we need to look at what else has changed. So let's look at our environment. Okay, if we think about how we evolved, is our lifestyle and our environment different than what we evolved with? I think we could say without a doubt that it's, yeah, it's quite <laughs> it's quite different, right? Yeah. And that has drastically changed even more in the last one to 200 years. Mm. So we're seeing things that our bodies are just not used to. So our biology 
doesn't know how to adapt and compensate to this modern environment. This is what they call the uh, evolutionary mismatch theory. So yeah. when the biology or when the animal or, or the organism is not adapted to the environment that they're in, then disease or dysfunction or maladaptation occurs. So this is sort of the premise of the evolutionary approach to addressing people's health and disease. I think if we view things from that perspective, it really is like turning on the lights all of a sudden. Mm. We can see, oh, wow, yeah, look, you know, we, we live completely differently than how we used to. We're indoors all the time. We're on stimulants all the time. We're surrounded by toxins constantly. We're in front of screens. We don't have community anymore, right? We used to live in small, tight-knit community. We're not barefoot. We're not mm. walking around on the ground. There's, there's so many things that all of a sudden your eyes open to to say, okay, well, maybe if we address these, we can start to see improvements in health. And I think we do see that, but yeah, it's a bit of a slow change and we have to get more people on board and more people understanding these concepts, but yeah, it's a bit of an uphill battle. It is. It's like taking, it's the same kind of thing with the specialists and generalists. Like we've tended to sort of look deeper and deeper into certain areas. Whereas if you just take a step back, take a bird's eye view and look at how like the whole environment and the lifestyle and see how much that has changed and how much that, um, correlates i suppose with all this rise in pain and disease then it's like one plus one equals two yeah um but the tendency or the the danger is that the culture we live in i think promotes a lot of uh, i guess the individual responsibility which is really good because it is Mm -hmm. our responsibility as individuals to make a change in our life but at the same time we're quite limited by the options that our environment provides to us. For, for example, there, there was, I can't remember who it was that was talking about it, but there's areas where there's basically food deserts. Yep. And so <clears throat> all they've got is access to sort of, um, truck stop type food, yep. like yep, fully processed junk food. Yep. Um, we and so you thing. could, you could say them say to them, Oh, you just need to sort of, you know, put your discipline on and go and get some real food. And it's like, well, where do I get that real food? Yeah. So that's an extreme example, but there's that kind of thing going on a lot in different areas. Massively. Yeah. This is sort of the socioeconomic aspects of disease, right? So we know that there's extremely high correlation between socioeconomic status and your risk of all sorts of diseases, even just mortality. So there's definitely the bigger public health aspect that we need to address even in movement, we see the same, you know, you could be in a city and see no parks at all. And we talk about the importance of getting outside, being in nature. Well, if you don't have access to that, mm. then yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to overcome. It is. And it, there was a, a moment when I was, I was traveling somewhere, I think it was in Perth and I was staying with a friend and I was, you know, I've, I've always been, I've always liked walking, um, but especially since reading more books and listening to more things and just the power of walking, I'm like, yeah, sweet. I'm like, I always want to go for walks every day, but I've always kind of had nice areas to walk through. And this, (laughs) this area was kind of just, just a concrete jungle with not many trees and not many nice places to look. And it was like, yeah, I'm walking, but I'm not really enjoying it. I can really see how someone would be like, I don't really feel like going for a walk. Like I know it's good for me, but as a, as a society, then we, we kind of need to look, more at the environments that promote certain behaviors and it's the same kind of thing that we would see with footwear i always like to think about it 
in that sense is like if you go into an office and the culture and even the dress code is like dress shoes and high heels, <laughs> then you're not going to be that weirdo with the sort of wide yep. toe box flat <laughs> shoes. Yeah. Um, and so we need we need to sort of collectively create environments that facilitate these health promoting behaviors. Yeah. But we can't really do that without individuals making a decision to sort of like in that grassroots way of like, yeah. I'm going to be the weird one and go and wear those wide toe box shoes or go to the park <laughs> yeah. barefoot. Or something. I'm happy. I'm happy to be that person. But yeah, yeah we, we, I think this is the hard problem in, in medicine and I guess overall in society, right. With addressing this chronic health issue is yeah, how do we, how do we create that change? I think we need policy change, but that takes time and it's usually pretty slow. So, and I guess policy change would be led by individuals, sort of yep. wanting it and 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 writing to their yeah ideally to the representatives and stuff which to be honest it's not something i've done <laughs> um, <laughs> yep, maybe yep. i should but it's i think yeah it's a very deep issue um but i think even just people having that lens of hey maybe i'm more in control of my health than i thought it's yep. not all related to my genes my de- my health isn't necessarily predestined by my genes and these environmental factors and lifestyle factors can all sort of change how not only health, but like, I think a good thing to wrap it around is just how good you feel day to day. That's the main thing. Because yep. that's more tangible, I think. Yep. Whereas if someone's like, oh, cool, I'll prevent heart disease in um, yeah, that long term Long term gratification yeah. doesn't work. Humans, humans are terrible at that sort of thing. Yeah, we need the, we need the small wins. But yeah, I think it does start with the individual, right? And that's that's the power of changing the perspective of, I guess, this deterministic view with genetics versus the aspect of focusing on environment, lifestyle, things that you can control is it removes that victim mindset and then Mm. puts the power in your hands to control what you can, right? We can all control things like, you know, go for a walk, take the stairs, don't take the elevator, small, small things like that. So I think if we can focus on those small habits that put the power into the individual's hands that's where we start the movement from but that does take time it takes education right? it takes people doing these types of things promoting these types of lifestyles but yeah i guess it's a it's a slow burn and i think we'll get there eventually um but yeah the, the other side i think is difficult is we've created this life of comfort right mm-hmm. and comfort i think is the probably biggest thing that's a detriment to us now is that we want to be comfortable. We want to be in air conditioning. I don't want to have to walk far. Mm-hmm. If it's hot out, it's going to be sweaty. You know, I always want to be at 24 degrees in my house, these <laughs> types of things. So this comfort lifestyle, um, I'd highly recommend reading The Comfort Crisis for anyone mm-hmm. who, who hasn't read it. It covers this extremely well. But that's an aspect where our mindsets need to shift and we need to actually seek discomfort because that's where growth and change happens. If we just do the same stuff all the time and we stay in that comfort area, you're not going to see these types of changes that we need. So yeah, with health and lifestyle change, it's not going to be easy all the time. Um, But I think, like you said, the focus on how good you're going to feel afterwards when you do the hard work and you know, you've put the time in and you've been in charge of that, you're going to feel amazing. And I think Mm. people just, everyone's gotten used to feeling suboptimal, right? Because it's a slow change. When you're young, you had all these dreams, you were active all the time. And then slowly you get into uni, you stop being as active, eventually you get into work, you stop doing more, and you slowly just drip into this life where this is the new norm, right? But it's that whole saying of what's common isn't normal. So a lot of people have lost perspective on 
how much energy they're supposed to have, right? Mm. When you wake up in the morning, you should be good to go. You should be excited. You should be able to jump out of bed. You should have energy to work out every day. But most people have just become used to being stuck in this lifestyle of low energy, lethargy, low motivation, you know, and yeah, it's unfortunate because people can do so much more. Yeah, and often it's the the story is, oh, I'm just getting old, like I'm getting into my thirties now. And so like, I just don't have the energy or my back hurts or my neck hurts or my knee hurts. And they, it again, like you said, it's that kind of victim mentality where life is just happening to them. These injuries are just happening to them um, and age is happening to them and there's nothing they can do to control it. Um, but you're right, the, the, the baseline, everyone's like the collective baseline of how your body should feel, how freely you should move, yep. how much energy you should have, how clear your thinking should be. All of that is sort of just way lower than it should be, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I found that even for myself, like there'll be, there'll be times where I'm really... Um, on point with a lot of the different habits that I know serve me and I'm like oh yeah that this is how I should feel like yep. I'm super clear super crisp <laughs> wake up in the morning easy peasy get up don't feel like I need coffee coffee is just a bonus yep. and you know and then there'll be times where you slip into bad habits you know um, one for me lately that I've just sort of um put a stopper in is the sort of scrolling, like sometimes yeah. scrolling before bed or, sc- or like being on my phone first thing when I wake, wake up. Yep. And it's a habit that I'd kicked before, but it had crept back in. And it's, you know, it's not that I'm like weak willed or anything. It's just the habit crept back in. And then I figured it, I go, oh yeah, that's why I'm feeling less, less energetic. Yep. And then I've just started putting my phone, like not taking the phone into the bedroom with me yep. anymore. And then now like it's kind of bizarre how quickly it works but literally just doing that the next morning i woke up way better first time no snooze felt energetic got up and and, like was up and at them and it's sometimes you can have those times where you make a change and then so immediately you're like oh i actually feel better having done that yeah but i think a lot of that comes from maybe building the the interoception and really being in tune with how your body feels. And so I I really feel that something was off and I was like, Oh, it's probably this. So I changed that. And then it was like immediately I knew that was the difference. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think having the awareness is always that first step. So people need to make the choice to be aware of what the issue is. So it's Mm. always the first thing. If you're not paying attention to it, then it's going to be very difficult to make any meaningful change. You've got to first be aware of, what am I doing that is maybe not in alignment with my long-term goals? And then you can put a plan in place to figure out how am I going to change this? But you have to be willing to make that choice. And sometimes that's uncomfortable for people, right? We come back to the comfort thing. Mm. So admitting to yourself that what you're doing is not good or whatever, it's not serving you, that is uncomfortable for people, right? So emotionally, psychologically, there's sometimes resistance to being honest with yourself about is this really what I should be doing with my time? And that's not to say that, you know, we all have to be perfect. We all have our things, right? Mm. I just had a coffee as well. So I'm not saying avoid <laughs> coffee, those types of things. There's, we're all human at the end of the day, but it's just about being mindful about how you're living your day and thinking about, you know, where do you want to be? How do you want to feel? And then trying to make small adjustments and build small habits to, to get towards that. But if you're not willing to make that first jump and be honest with yourself, 
it's going to be very hard to then implement any type of strategy. If you're not aware of what the issue is, how can you fix the issue? Mm. Right? So I think that is the first point. And they say mindset's everything, right? Yeah. So it's, it's starting from that perspective of mindset. So change your view and see things as opportunities for growth, not failures. So a lot of people think getting feedback or admitting you've done something wrong is a failure. And I think this is a, an unfortunate development in modern society, which is probably getting worse now, where we've sort of painted this picture that failure is bad, right? In school, you, know, you can't fail. You have to make sure you wrote, learn all these things, make sure you mm -hmm. get it right. In sports, there's no failure and there's no winners anymore. It's just mm -hmm. everyone gets a gold star. So there's components where we have this aversion to failure and feedback, yeah. which now develops mindsets that don't want to go down that path. And so if you don't, if you don't know what you've done wrong or what you are doing wrong, it becomes very hard to make any meaningful change. Mm. Yeah, you need the awareness that something's wrong. And sometimes it's obvious, like a pain in your knee. <laughs> yeah. um, and sometimes it's not as obvious, like you said, with that sort of general baseline of you're just a bit lethargic. You think it's just because you're getting old or because you're, you're stressed or whatever. And stress may play a role. But so an awareness that there is something potentially wrong or at least that could be improved and then awareness of the different factors that might improve it and then the i guess the readiness or willingness to experiment and see well is it this i'm going to try changing this and then really tuning into what your the signals your body's giving you and going yeah that was it or oh, yeah. no i still feel a bit off and i'm going to try something else and and being okay with it not necessarily being the right answer like you said with that just being okay with a few failures along the way and still not sort of giving up or not um then just saying oh it's impossible and i'm just gonna live like this yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no i think that's so important what you said about doing this self-experimentation right and it's tricky because we live in an age of information and unfortunately that also leads to misinformation. So you could jump online and search something on Google and get a million different answers for how you're supposed to be healthy, right? Meat, yeah. no meat, plant-based, you know, sun is good for you. Sun is bad for you. It causes cancer. There's so much, um, old, uh, differing views around things that it can be difficult for a layman to know what is right. And, and that's where I always say, try to work with a good practitioner, right? Cause they can guide you. But at the end of the day, it's also about you, doing that self-experimentation. So try mm. something and see, see how you feel, but you have to, you have to track it and you have to be mindful of the way you're going about it so that you can see if the change is actually affecting your health. And that comes back to, again, having that self agency in, in what you're doing, not relying on someone else to tell you necessarily what to do, but yeah, take ownership, try a couple of things, see if it works. And that's that whole personalized approach to care and personalized approach to medicine is, yeah, what works for one person might not work for another. So sure, this influencer on Instagram doing this diet, maybe it works for them, but maybe it doesn't work for you. Yeah. So you need to try it out and be honest with yourself and see what works. You know, I, I see quite a few people speaking of the plant-based side where there's a big movement even there, but for some people that can work really well. And for a lot of uh, people, especially young women, you know, they have amenorrhea, they have anemia, they have lethargy, they have depression. Mm. There's a whole host of things that happen, but they've unfortunately been sort of drawn in by dogma opposed to looking at themselves and being honest and say, how do I feel on this diet or this lifestyle? So I think you have to assess how you feel personally with what you're doing, but be flexible enough to then pivot and change and try something else. Right? Mm. If, if you're bought into dogma, then your flexibility is out the window, right? So 
you have to try to be objective as possible and be open to trying different things. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an issue or it can be an issue when we start to fully identify with a certain, um, yeah, like you said, a certain dogma or a certain belief and it's like, Oh, that makes perfect sense to me. And maybe many people find, let's say a plant-based diet as an example, many people find that they do feel really good on a plant-based diet at first. And then over time, this is stories that I've heard. Um, over time they go, Oh, I'm getting a lot of health issues and doesn't seem to be my stress. Doesn't seem to be my sleep. Doesn't yep. seem to be this, but the, unfortunately there can be this resistance to like, but the plant-based diet is good. <laughs> like, and for all these reasons and it, and it worked for me for the first six months or whatever. So it yeah. can't be that either, yeah. but your life, like your certain things in your life can change and, and even just certain nutrient deficiencies can accumulate i imagine um i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on all of that actually yeah i was going to ask if you wanted to yeah, go down this rabbit hole because <laughs> yeah it, i think re- nutrition has turned into a bit of a religion right where mm. it has become quite dogmatic um, and even there's people in the paleo diet who that's yeah. dogmatic and now there's the carnivore diet and that's sometimes a bit dogmatic so i think it's human tendency unfortunately to be black or white yeah. and we like to go to extremes And I think social media has pushed us more in that way where it's very easy to only see extreme views and then be fed those more and more. Big time. Yeah, massively. It's it's a bit of an issue and same thing happens with barefoot versus shoes, you know. Anything. There's always context, but it seems to only be getting worse. And it's not to blame social media. Social media is only a tool. The problem is people's lack of, I think, initial understanding around critical thinking Mm. first so yes okay it's good to be exposed to altering views in fact it's very important to be exposed to differing views but you have to have the capability to then assess and critically think about what those views mean what does it mean for you personally and that can be a whole rabbit hole of i guess getting people to think in that manner but coming back to the plant-based there's a lot of contention here. I'll give my opinion, right? Yeah, nutrition is yeah. nutrition is something that I've I've studied a lot, right? I did my undergrad. I've spent a lot of time postgrad studying this, obviously within context of evolutionary concepts as well. And um, there's recent documentaries in the last couple of years that have come out that I think sometimes skew some of their research or are outright sometimes lying about what scientific consensus is, which is concerning. But if we look at things from an evolutionary perspective hands down, there's no debate that we were hunter-gatherers, right? Mm. During most of our evolution, Paleolithic, Stone Age, whatever it is, for the vast millions of years of our evolution, from hominins to hominids to our recent ancestors, you know, Homo erectus, Australopithecines, all of these ones that we can just list off, there's very good research. We know we were hunter-gatherers for a vast majority of that. Hunter-gatherers basically means that we hunted and we gathered, Mm. right? So we hunted what we could, typically animals, and then we gathered whatever we could find. So that would have been maybe berries, fruits, maybe some nuts and seeds. But where the ancestral health goes is really thinking about, well, what was the realistic consumption of foods from that perspective? If we think about the modern diet, if we're moving towards a plant-based diet, we think of things like uh, grains, beans, soy, all these sort of monocrops, right? And for those Mm. who don't know, monocrops are basically where we plant fields and fields of this one crop to be able to grow that one crop. So we take up mass amount of land so that we can have fields of beans and fields of soy and fields of wheat. 
That is not how nature works, right? That only works because we have modern industrial agriculture. So we have things like fertilizer, artificial fertilizer, which on a sustainability perspective is some of the worst stuff that you can think of, right? We have herbicides and pesticides. We have um, tractors and farm equipment. So all these modern things since the birth of the Neolithic period that came in that allowed us to consume more of these grains and wheat, barley, etc., and, and legumes and beans. So naturally, if we think about evolutionarily, we wouldn't have consumed those types of foods in any meaningful quantity, right? Mm -hmm. If you go out bush or you go for a hike, try to find a whole field of beans that you can survive on for any meaningful time, it's not going to happen. But we can find animals. Animals were always around. Mm. And there's lots of evidence between anthropological evidence. You know, there's uh, cave drawings that a lot of people like to talk about. But if we want to get more scientific, we can even look at things like nitrogen isotope measures, where we can see the protein content that was likely in that uh, species diet. So if we look at our ancestors, we see high amounts of specific types of nitrogen, which is suggestive of consuming high amounts of animal proteins. That's one example. There's there's many other examples. So. I think from a, a large level, it's incongruent with an evolutionary approach to think that we were plant-based, right? And the other big one that I like to talk about and many people talk about are the evolutionary changes that occurred in Homo sapiens that separated us from the other hominids, particularly that is our brain size. That's one of the biggest things. So we see that not only our volume of our brain increased, but we also saw our stomach shrink. So there's a theory called the expensive tissue hypothesis, or hypothesis more than a theory, I suppose, um, which shows that when we increase nutrient density, we can then increase the amount of energy used towards our brain and less towards our stomach. And this is exactly what we saw with mm -hmm. the evolution of Homo sapiens. If we look at a lot of our um, close relatives or other great apes, they still have quite a large intestine, especially a large intestine which was important for fermenting and digesting a lot of fibrous types of foods, plant-based foods. Our stomachs now and our digestive systems are more in line with a forager or a uh, um, scavenger. So more like a carnivore, because again, through our evolution, what we probably did was we could scavenge what we could find. Humans, we kind of suck as predators, <laughs> right? We don't have claws, we don't have big fangs, we're not particularly strong. We've got or, spears. <laughs> but exactly, yeah. so that's the main thing. So yeah. over, over the development of our tool use, we learned how to become better hunters. But at the beginning, we probably weren't that great. Mm. So what we did was we scavenged what was left over from other predators. So the theory here is that we probably had a lot of meat that was borderline going bad. Um, and we see evidence even of like bone marrow. So there are a lot of sites where there's cracked large bones like femur bones because we would get to the bone marrow and that had a lot of nutrients, a lot of healthy fats. So again, there's growing evidence that over time we started to get more of this meat, but our, our stomach evolved to actually be extremely acidic because we were scavengers. So the pH of our stomach is more in line with other animals that are carnivorous or scavengers. So again, there's more evidence to suggest that we probably were more in line with consuming animals and consuming those types of foods. So I think within the evolutionary perspective and within the ancestral health perspective, we think meat was definitely a primary aspect of our evolution and of our diet, but we definitely have evidence that we did consume other things. We consumed tubers, other vegetables. We did consume nuts and seeds here and there, but not in any meaningful quantity when we think about the amount of calories and the nutrients that we, we got out of those. Meat and animal-based foods are clearly a superior food. 
that um, we definitely consumed. Things like iron, B12, uh, carnosine, carnitine, taurine, vitamin A, vitamin K2, uh, I'm probably missing a few things in there. Glycine, choline, all of these nutrients are really important for our health mm. and they're predominantly animal-based. So yeah. again, if we're thinking about a parsimonious perspective of things, it wouldn't make sense that our our appropriate diet as a homo sapiens would not consist of nutrients that are required for our functioning and well-being, right? So if you have to supplement something, I think that tells you right away that it's probably not the optimal diet it might it might work right you might be able to get away with it but there's potential detriment there yeah so there would be i imagine there would be some people who for whatever reason just don't like the idea of eating animals and (laughs) they could survive on that diet obviously and especially in order to thrive um, then or even to survive long-term, I imagine, they would need to take some kind of supplement to um, account for the fact that they're not eating animal foods that have those certain nutrients that are either missing or not not in big quantities in the plant foods. Yeah. 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 I mean, B12 and iron, I think most people are pretty familiar with that those are two key nutrients that if you are deficient in can lead to very serious health consequences. So most people typically would be consuming B12 or iron supplementally Mm. or doing things like uh, fermented yeast to try to get some form of that. Um, But they just don't compare. Like those nutrients are more readily available in an animal-based food, particularly iron. So iron, um, for your listeners, is a difference between types of iron, whether it's animal-based or plant-based. So there's heme iron and non-heme iron. Heme iron is more bioavailable for us, so we digest it and utilize it in our bodies much better than non-heme. And so you can only get heme iron from animal-sourced foods. So there's many examples. Vitamin A is another perfect example where a lot of people say, yeah, you can get vitamin A from plants. It's in carotene, right? Carotene converts into vitamin A. But the fact is that a lot of people actually don't convert carotene into vitamin A, into active vitamin A, retinol, very well downwards of you know three to ten percent of that actually gets converted to vitamin a versus mm. in an animal-based food like liver or something like that you're actually getting the active form of that vitamin a mm. so yeah there's many examples of nutrients like that where there's a clear delineation between the form of that nutrient mm. what about collagen as an example because um, obviously collagen uh, is forms the building block of a lot of our connective tissue and fascia mm. and tendons and ligaments and um, that's obviously something that gets talked about these days a lot in terms of joint health and so mm. on. That's a big part of my interest as a physio and what we're doing with TFC is helping people's joints function well and this yep. their whole sort of movement systems function well. So yeah, how would, would people need to supplement with collagen, um, if they weren't on, if they weren't eating much or enough meat products or animal products? Yeah, I guess it would depend on their personal preference, so what their eating preferences are. If they're vegetarian or vegan, collagen is not appropriate because you can only get collagen from animal-based. There is no collagen in plants, right? They use fiber, they use cellulose. That's their sort of structural building blocks. So you can only get it from animal-based foods. If they're willing to, I do recommend to my patients, if they're happy to add some collagen, they can. Mm. Um, That has to be up to them of what they feel is appropriate for their... Um, personal views Um, and it does play a role so there is initially there was a lot of um, 
misconceptions and maybe doubt of whether consuming collagen actually helped collagen and tissues okay. in your body. Uh, but now in the last couple of years, there's been a couple of good studies that have shown that actually it does. So the thinking here was that collagen is a form of peptides, but stomach acid tends to break down peptides. Mm. And so the, they were thinking that, well, if it's just getting broken down in the stomach, then it's not helping your actual collagen. But in fact, it looks like some polypeptides and small peptides can pass through the stomach, but also you're providing your body's... Um, your body's ability to synthesize collagen by providing those specific amino acids mm. from consuming collagen. So we see that it, yeah. it does actually help enhance collagen um, production, and that can be good for skin, can be good for joints. There's a whole host of areas that it helps. But there's particular amino acids, um, and you're testing me a bit here if I remember them. So glycine, proline, and isoproline or isovaline. There's a third one, which now I forget. But there's three key amino acids which are really important for collagen synthesis. Again, that are predominantly in a animal-based source that can be very difficult to get from plant-based. Right. So yeah, there's definitely an aspect where if it's within your sort of context of what you can consume, it's probably beneficial. And it's another thing that we don't consume a lot of anymore. If you are eating meat, a lot of people just eat the muscle meat. Right? They're not really mm. having stews and broths and they're not eating the skin and the joints and they're not chewing on the cartilage. Mm. All of those fun parts that people don't like. I love those parts. Yeah, same, <laughs> same here. Yeah. But that's where you're going to get all the connective tissue. And I think there's a difference too, True. and this is where my preference is going to be bone broth or um, actually consuming those foods versus taking a collagen peptide. Because if you take a collagen, all you're getting is the collagen. But actually, there's a whole lot uh, more within connective tissue and within joints that you're getting things like gly glycosaminoglycans, um, which are really important for lining a lot of our um, connective tissue and providing smoothness across there. Um, so there's a host of other cofactors and a host of other important nutrients that you get when you're consuming the whole food or a bone broth versus consuming a, a you know artificially produced collagen peptide. Right. Yeah. 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 I suppose the same thing would go for pretty much anything like, you know, taking a vitamin C supplement versus eating an orange. Yep. You know, there's a whole heap of things that we know about and probably a whole heap of things that we don't know about from the real food that you don't really get from the supplement. So yep. a supplement should really be a last resort in a sense, or it should be really only out of necessity if you're like, if you just have no access to fruits yep. <laughs> and you need vitamin C, then maybe that would, although I, that might even be debatable debatable isn't it or I don't it, it know. seems to be it i mean again if you look at some of the people in the carnivore space these days there there seems to be some contention as to how much vitamin c you need so yeah. you know for example you look at sean baker um you can check him out on social media he's been doing carnivore which has literally just been ribeyes and steak not even like a, a complex carnivore diet with virtually no vitamin C and he hasn't had scurvy and he hasn't had bleeding gums and he's actually quite healthy. So yeah, it's interesting to see a lot of these anecdotes and of course they're just anecdotes, um, but it at least changes the perspective a little bit to make you go, hmm, okay, that's interesting. Maybe what we knew is not 100% correct. Yeah, which often happens with humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, we've got a surprising habit of being wrong about things. All the time. And... And it comes back to that sort of dogma or that sort of like, oh, we, this is a scientific fact. And it's like, well, a lot of scientific facts across the years have been sort of disproven or um, people have realized there's more context and nuance to them. So yeah. it's important to keep an open mind. And I think, you know, that, that whole 
like you said, it's quite a rabbit hole, the, the nutrition space and especially plant-based versus carnivore and, and whatever. But if people, I guess, what would be some of the most low-hanging fruit for you from like a nutrition perspective, regardless of if someone is um, plant-based or carnivore or whatever, whatever it is they're following or if they're not even following a current diet, like what do you think would be some of the biggest, the best starting point, I suppose, for anyone yeah. who's interested to improve their nutrition? I think that's the funny thing is that there's usually a lot of overlap as to the underlying reasons why people are supporting diets and they're usually trying to move towards the same purpose. So for the vast majority of any diet, especially if you're coming from the SAD diet, right? Standard American diet, as mm -hmm. they call it. Um, or even standard Australian. Or standard <laughs> Australian. Sad. Yeah, same, same thing. Um, the starting points are typically the same. This is why people will usually see improvements in health no matter what diet they do is because you're moving to real food. So there's a, an old acronym, JERF, just eat real food, mm -hmm. which that pretty much is your best starting point. Think about non-processed um, and overly processed food. So if it comes in a box, if it comes in a bag, if it had some type of industrial processing, it's probably not good for you. Try to stick to what the earth has provided. So whether that's fruits, vegetables, animals, whatever it is, as much as possible, just try to stick to real food. And for the vast majority of people, that will be sufficient to correct a lot of issues. Mm. Then, you know, you can get more specific as far as, all right, how much of this do you need? How much of that? But I think for most people, just eliminating the crap food is going to be the best thing. And it's a, it's a big problem because, and this is another rabbit hole you can go down, but the industrialization of food currently has been a big problem. It's probably one of the major issues of um, the current epidemic of chronic disease in that food production has been sort of corporatized and now industries literally know how to trigger specific areas in your brain that reward you for eating those foods so you mm. continue eating them right it's that whole dopamine hit there's a whole what's called a neural regulation of appetite this is a good book by Stephen Guillenet um, which is the hungry brain and he talks about how basically your brain gets completely hijacked by these modern processed foods so we call them hyper palatable foods they've made them perfectly crunchy they've got the umami they hit all the flavors you know they know exactly what's going to make you continue to eat those foods and override your natural satiety signals so consuming those just leads to overconsumption, and that's a, a major issue but there's a whole host of other things too whether they're too high in processed omega-6 oils mm. they're too high in sugar they're too high in a whole host of other things but again the baseline starting point there is just eliminate the processed foods and yeah <clears throat> Excuse me. You're gonna you're gonna come out much better on the other end of that. Yeah, yeah. That's generally what we always say. Like I I'm not a nutritionist by any means. Um, I've sort of I've been very interested by it, and I do follow a lot of the sort of the arguments, I suppose, back and forth between different camps, and mm. sort of look into it. Um, but at the end of the day, if for the like you said, for the vast majority of people, if you just stick to, I think I would add something that I've sort of found pretty profound is just which you kind of have to do if you're sticking to real food. Eh, not really, but just cooking all your own stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that in itself cuts out a lot of the processed food, but as in, I mean like cooking from scratch, not like just chucking something in the microwave. Yeah. Um, Funny aside there, I can't remember if it was a dietitian or a doctor and I can't remember who, but I saw that on social media. What they actually do with their patients is they tell them it's okay to eat junk food, 
Like you can have cakes and cupcakes yeah. and things like that as long as you make it from scratch. Yeah. Because in the end, people end up not doing it <laughs> because it's too difficult or they just don't consume as much because it's not convenient. I thought that was funny. Yeah. And if they do do it, then you, I think you enjoy it so much more. Like mm. sometimes um, like my partner will bake a cake from scratch and yes, there's sugar in there and there's wheat, like flour and, you know, gluten and all the sort of things that are sort of demonized these days. Yeah. But I can, I can tolerate them. I don't necessarily feel awesome after them, (laughs) but you know, if it's like a birthday cake then, and it's made from scratch, then you enjoy it a lot more. It's sort of, it's the act of someone making something for you, for example, or like the act of sharing a delicious food with like, there is other aspects to, I think eating other than just what nutrients are going in or yep. what like sort of bad things are going in. I think there's an element of that Definitely. as well. It's like the old adage breaking bread, right? Like yeah. there's a reason why we have that saying is because there's a whole social aspect to food and to mm. eating that, yeah, we tend not to think of, which it is important, right? So you don't want to ostracize yourself because you're that guy who doesn't eat this, that, and whatever. I was um, that guy for a while. Yeah, yeah, and, and so was I. And look, some, some people have certain health conditions. Like for myself, yeah. I've got an autoimmune condition. So for me, I need to be more strict with my diet because otherwise I get a flare of, of symptoms. Mm. So there's going to be people who, yes, you do need to be more mindful. But I think the other side of it is being cautious especially as a practitioner, right? If you're working with individuals, you would see this in physiotherapy in relation to pain. You see it even with medicine, dietetics. You have to be mindful about the nocebo effect, right? So for those that don't know, I think most people are familiar with the placebo effect, where if someone thinks they're getting a treatment, but they actually haven't, they still see a response. The nocebo effect is the sort of opposite to that, where if someone has been told something negative of a response they'll get from something, the likelihood that that becomes true tends to happen. So even with diet, we can see this, and gluten's a perfect example because a lot of people now have been told or have read on the internet symptoms, and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm celiac, or I'm gluten intolerant, or this, that, or the other, um, and now they've manifested a lot of these symptoms, digestive symptoms or otherwise, when in fact, if we tested them, and this has been done, there's been studies looking at this, they're not actually celiac, they're not gluten sensitive or wheat intolerant. Um, so there is an aspect of we have to be mindful not to drive fear into mm. people because that's probably a huge aspect of this whole over-medicalization approach to things too, right? Even in pain, we see it in pain where, oh, let's go get a scan. Okay, now you're going to go on these drugs. And yeah. in the end, all they needed to do was focus on their anxiety and maybe get a better job and start walking a little bit. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, we have to be just a bit mindful that we don't promote fear mindsets around healthy lifestyle habits. And some exposure to certain things for the vast majority of people is going to be perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's all individual, as you've said, if you truly do have some kind of allergy or intolerance to something, then, you know, it's up to you whether you want to avoid it or not. And usually you probably would want to avoid it to, to avoid those kinds of symptoms. But, um, I know for me, I went through a phase where I was, very sort of like oh this is healthy and this isn't healthy and Mm. i would sort of be the one who was avoiding things um because they weren't healthy and i don't know in a sense i'm gonna put quote unquote not healthy um and i I wasn't that extreme but what's the what's the word for people who sort of do go down that extreme um, orthorexia orthorexia yeah. yeah yeah and that that's a bit of a thing in the fitness i think community these days where it's like Again, it relates back to the dogma of like 
this food is good, this food is bad. Whereas if you sort of just follow a bit more of an intuitive approach um, and just sort of do figure out what works for you and stick to that most of the time, then that's usually okay rather than sort of beating yourself up for eating a cookie or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think consistency is always the main thing. And again, it comes back to this aspect that humans always like to go to extremes. So, you know, it's the seven-day detox diet yeah. and the... 20 days to six pack abs and you know, the new challenge at the gym and people go hard for, you know, a week or two and then burn out because it's not sustainable. Mm. So I think people need to change their mindset around that and successful people, whether it's in health, in business, doesn't matter where you look, successful people do the basics consistently. That's it, right? Just do the basics and build those habits. And that's probably going to help you a lot more than smashing yourself for seven days and then falling back into old habits. But it's a tough one. It's a, it's again a mindset shift that people need to make. But you know, when salespeople are pushing you the dream, um, <laughs> it's easy to buy into that. It is. It is, <laughs> especially when you're seeing it all the time on your phones and and whatever. Yeah. Um, something you mentioned before. Speaking of um, dogma and I suppose the confusing space in health. Um, you were like you said, carnival versus plant based. You also said sunlight causes cancer or sunlight's like the best thing for you. So where are you at with that? My, from my point of view, there is probably somewhere like a middle, middle line, middle path between there. But it also from, again, from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't really make sense to me that the sun could be so terrible for us yeah. <laughs> that we have to block it all the time. Yeah. Again, I think this is why that evolutionary view of things is so important because if we always fall back to the question of, well, what made sense evolutionarily that gives us a good starting point yeah yeah, i think there's a lot of unknowns still in medicine and in health so that at least gives us a good starting point but yeah i think it's like most things right there's always context there we clearly need sunlight there's a lot of benefits everyone knows vitamin d i think these Mm. days Um, but there's also non-vitamin d mediated benefits of sunlight Mm -hmm. one of the main ones is nitric oxide production so if we're talking about say cardiovascular risk Nitric oxide is really important because that's what helps vasodilate the uh, circulatory system. Right? So that can help with circulation, can prevent, potentially help against cardiovascular disease. So that's one example. So there's a host of these other potential benefits as well as you know, aspects now in photobiomodulation, if people are familiar, which is basically a fancy way of saying how uh, photons or how light modulates our biology. It's a new science. We're still learning a little bit of how this plays a role, but there's potentially a whole host of effects that the sun is giving us that is very important for health. So we definitely need some. And I think on the opposite end, like most things, if you go to the extreme, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So there is clearly evidence that there is an increase in melanoma and skin cancer and those types of things. But funny enough, there's also some evidence that suggests that people who get significant amount of sunlight seem to have a lower risk of some melanomas in certain mm. parts of the world. Mm. So yeah, I think there's mixed literature there and it's a tricky one because I think we're still, we're still figuring it out a little bit, but definitely there's an aspect where we need some sunlight and you know, we didn't even talk about the whole circadian aspect of mm. regulating our circadian system and making sure that that is working and functioning well, which a big component is going to be light exposure. Um, but in general, it's one of the things that needs to be personalized a little bit. So going out into the sun and burning yourself on the beach for four hours, probably not great, 
But, you know, walking down the street with your sleeves up and a bit of exposure on your sleeves and your face for five to 10 minutes is going to be perfectly fine for most people. In fact, it's probably going to be beneficial and be healthy. But it depends on, you know, how many times you're doing that. How long have you been exposed to sun over your life? What's the uh, tone of your skin? Because that's going to change quite drastically. If you're a darker skin tone, then you're going to need more time in the sun to get more synthesis of vitamin D. You're also less likely to burn in a shorter time. Whereas if you're on the other spectrum and, you know, you're quite white, then yeah, your risk of burning is going to be a lot higher. So you, you need to modulate based on your own circumstances, how much sun exposure you're going to get. But again, in line with the evolutionary aspects, I think it's something that everyone should be exposed to daily. Mm. You should be getting mm. sun exposure every day. And that could just be five, 10 minutes. It doesn't need to be a lot, but everyone should be getting it. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole of really optimizing, you know, sun exposure and circadian rhythms, then, you know, waking up with the sun, making sure you're getting sunlight on your eyes during the day, turning off the lights at night when you go to sleep, right? As soon as the sun is down, try to minimize artificial light. There's all those components as well. Um, but yeah, Australia is always a bit of a tricky one because there was a lot of um, campaigning, I guess, around putting fear around the sun because of risk of melanoma. And I think we've swung a bit too far. Mm. And now we see actually, ironically, in Australia, which has such powerful sun, high rates of vitamin D deficiency and vitamin D insufficiency, which is sort of just below deficiency. So it's, it's kind of strange that we see that in an area where we've got so much sun. Yeah. And a vitamin D deficiency, my understanding is that is actually a risk factor for certain cancers and Absolutely. a lot of chronic diseases as Absolutely. well. Yep. So like you said, there needs to be a balance and it does need to suit where you are, where you're at individually. But I, I guess dosage, dosage makes the poison in a lot of ways. Like you obviously don't want to be burning yourself. But something I've experienced is that my tolerance to the sun and my propensity to get burnt depends on how much gradual exposure I have. Yep. So if I get really pale over a certain period, like I'm not getting much sun, like there was a time, um, like just earlier in the year, we had so much rain, I wasn't getting out as much into the sun. And then... Um, I found it a lot easier to get burnt when I'm like that. Whereas if I have more gradual exposure each day and I'm smart about it, then I build up, I'm going to say, quote unquote, unquote, a healthy tan. I know there was a a very um, big ad campaign over here. There's nothing healthy about a tan. Um, But I mean, I'm sure that that's probably a rabbit hole in itself. But the tan is my understanding. It's more of a pigment. Um, yeah, it's an, adap- adap- adaptation. it's an adaptation that would then, so I find it stops me from getting burnt if I spend longer in the sun yep. or there's less chance of me getting burnt. Um, but there's also uh, a couple of things. One, there was a study I heard about where they looked at office workers versus tradies, I think. So tradies were spending a lot more time in the sun regularly and mm. office workers were spending time in the sun probably only on weekends. And the office workers were the ones with the much, much higher rates of skin cancers. Yep. Whereas it's like, oh, that's sort of, that's interesting. The tradies are out there all day, every day. And the office workers are getting it every now and then. And that kind of makes sense. Like your skin needs to build a bit of a resilience to the sun's rays. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that's kind of what I was alluding to with some of that recent literature showing that actually people with more sun exposure tend to have lower rates 
Um, yeah, and it, again, it depends on where you are in the world, and it's always context-specific. But yeah, there's that whole adaptation of melanin in the skin, which is the pigment that helps reflect the UV rays. So yeah, the more exposure you have, the more melanin in your skin, the darker it will get, the more light you reflect, which means you're going to be mm-hmm. a little bit better at um, yeah, managing that UV exposure. Yeah. So it's like most things, it's small, regular doses is going to be a lot healthier for you. Whereas I think the current approach for a lot of people is avoid the sun as much as possible until I go to the beach and then go to the beach (laughs) and sit there for a couple hours and then blame the sun for getting burnt. Yeah. Right. When actually, if you had exposed yourself regularly and then been smart when you went to the beach, you know, only be out for a little while, get a tent, maybe cover up, put some sunscreen on after an hour or after 30 minutes, whatever Mm. it is, you know, you have to think about that total exposure and, and what you've built up to. Yeah. An interesting story. I've got a mate who um, has red hair, very pale skin, and historically he's always burnt really easy, like five minutes out in the summer sun and he'd be a crisp kind of thing. Um, And anyway, his experience, I'm going to have to get him on the podcast as well, but his experience has been cutting out a lot of the processed food and especially like um, seed oils, vegetable oils, um, which... Are pretty much in every processed food Everything these days. Now. Yep. Every fried food, every uh, most restaurants use them, especially fast food restaurants, because they're cheap. Basically, is my understanding. Yep. Um, and also marketed as heart healthy, but these sort of industrialized processed seed oils, he's cut all those out, and he's just been spending more and more time in the sun, and he's got a good tan, and he yep. doesn't get burnt anywhere near as easily. Like I'm sure if he, like anyone, if he went out for ages, and he might get burnt, but um, he can tolerate like way more like he can in the winter he was spending like he said he could spend pretty much all day in the sun and have no issue yeah so yeah, I've seen quite a few of these anecdotes and there's some research and I looked into this a while ago it's been a while since I've kind of gone into the literature so forgive me if I make a few errors or I'm missing a few points but one of the things with that omega-6 or the highly processed vegetable oils mm. is that omega-6 gets implemented into your cell membrane And then those are highly volatile and easily oxidized, Mm. even from the UV ray, right? It's radiation. So when you have a lot of excessive omega-6 in your skin, that gets built into your cells. When exposed, they damage, and then that increases your potential risk of burning. And I think there's also a production of, I think it's called lipofuscin, um, which can also have varying degrees of effects on your skin. So something you need to look into more. But yeah, there's a growing amount of both anecdotal reports, but also I think some literature now coming out into how excessive omega-6s in the diet from these processed foods may influence your tolerance to the sun and mm. also just your overall overall skin health with that exposure. Yeah, yeah. So it's not as simple as just, just how much sun are you getting. It's a lot of it comes down to, yeah, what food are you eating? What is the structure of your skin like? And I imagine a lot of other factors around sleep, like all the all the pillars obviously all those interact. Are play a role. Yep. So niacin, niacin's another one too. So there's now a lot of like serums and creams that will use oh, niacin yeah. as an afterburn because it helps regulate DNA damage. Mm. So again, if you're deficient in niacin or you have low levels, which can happen as you get older or due to nutrient deficiencies, um, then that can affect your ability of your skin to heal from UV damage as well. So yeah, there's there's a lot more uh, context and a lot more, uh, I guess, intrinsic understanding as what's happening specifically at the cellular level there that can influence it. Yeah, but it is interesting the if you follow your intuition and you don't sort of even don't get in too deep into the weeds, it's mm. like, it feels bad to get burnt, 
it feels good to get a little bit of sun and you look better when you've got a bit of a tan. Yeah. Like there's so many of these little things of if you just follow the what makes your body feel good because I guess again from that evolutionary um, context it's like I guess you know eating eating donuts makes you kind of feel good too short term but like on a on that deeper level and you kind of know whether it's a good good or if it's just a short-term kind of pleasure hit yeah um but there's so many things like eating real food cooked well does taste really good and you feel good afterwards and getting a little bit of sunlight that doesn't burn you feels really nice and Yeah. yeah if our bodies evolved to get those feelings because that's what they need to be healthy. That's what promoted health. Yeah. Yeah. So even without delving too deep into the science, often if you just follow your intuition, I think that it probably leads you in the right direction at least. Yeah. I guess depending on how, how far off the rails maybe you've gone, because that can, that can get derailed a little bit and can go off the side. But yeah, I think if you're at least relatively aware of your health and overall well being. Yeah, in, intuition tends to drive us pretty well. Yeah, maybe as long as you've got the context of the like how we've evolved and then you go, oh yeah, sun does feel really nice. Yeah. Oh yeah, this food does, t- like this meat tastes really good. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you say that because there, there was actually a study where they, uh, I can't remember if they were vegan or plant-based, whatever it was, and they wanted to measure their uh, brain response to different foods I can't remember the exacts of the study, so I might I might get it a little bit wrong, but anyone can sort of Google it and fact check me. But <laughs> they took plant-based people and they wanted to measure their neural response to different foods. And they looked at, I guess, the satiety aspect of it, which is a proxy of the more ingrained uh, desire to consume that food, right? And so when they actually showed these people meat, their external response, their conscious response was aversion, right? They're like, ew, gross, I don't want to eat that. But actually their brain response was that of like, holy crap, give me that food, right? It was actually the the normal response of really having strong desire to consume that food. Wow, interesting. Which is very interesting, right? So there's the aspect of, I guess, cognitive dissonance again, where people are maybe entraining themselves into certain belief patterns and certain thought patterns, but really the underlying driver, again, that intuition, our body sees something and goes, oh, nutrients, good, consume mm. nutrients. So yeah, that was an interesting one. I should see if I can maybe find that study so that it, it's referenced, but I'm sure people can find it if they look and Google it. Yeah, and the same thing goes, I think, for like on the meat example, then, you know, obviously animal welfare matters and how the animals are raised really matters. And um it's interesting, I've been going to this organic butcher for the last maybe year or so since moving into this new house and you can really taste the difference in the meat when you shop somewhere that is like, you know, they know the farmers, they know their it's good practices, they know the mm. animals are raised well. Um, and whether it's a placebo thing or not, or whether it's a nutrient thing or an energetic thing or whatever, you really, I really taste the difference and my partner has as well and you, you then eat some meat that hasn't been raised like that or you're just not sure how it's been raised um and it just just doesn't taste anywhere near as good it's yeah. i don't know it's more chewy in the example of meat but the same thing would go for you know vegetables or anything like that like well grown like if you go to the organic markets and you try have some of their fruit 
just tastes sweeter it's nicer juicier and so i don't yeah. know it's like got more life to it somehow i think the biggest thing with that is that is it local or has it been shipped across yeah, the country true. or mm. from somewhere else so oh that's a good point yeah a lot of your standard food had been if it's vegetables and fruits they would have picked it before it was ripe and then you know they might spray it with chemicals to assist with ripening or slow it down and then it's on a crate for however many months and by the time it gets to you half the nutrients have degraded anyway so you're losing a lot of that flavor from there whereas if you're getting something local the chances are that the time in transit has been drastically reduced so a lot of those nutrients are still there the the food is just generally a lot better and the same with meat too right meat has to be hung up and dried and then they might freeze it to transport it the longer it's frozen that you know helps but still some nutrients are going to degrade the quality of the meat's going to degrade. Mm. So yeah, there's a big difference between, you know, going to a good butcher or a good local grocer that's getting fresh food versus whatever you're getting from the supermarket. Yeah, big difference in taste and the taste kind of reflects the nutrient profile, I imagine, at least in some way. Yeah. Obviously, it depends how good you are at cooking in some (laughs) some ways. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's, I just find it cool and, and, weirdly profound that if you tune into the signals like all of these signals then you kind of can figure out what's good for you <laughs> yeah as long as you've got that evolutionary lens I yeah think. i think that's again that's that homing signal right i think if we look at things from that perspective it does make things a lot easier to figure out what is or what is potentially more healthy and then it comes up to like we said before it's that self-experimentation mm. right it gives you a framework and now use that framework but personalize it based on your responses and, and your needs yeah. but everyone's going to be different but yeah having having that main framework i think is where medicine is potentially missing we use the analogy sometimes of you know you look at most of the other sciences they have an underlying principle that they work from you know in engineering they have physics mm. right if you're in cosmology, then there's all of that. So a lot of these other hard sciences have a very solid grounding in one of the sciences. In medicine, traditionally, if you look at the history of it, a lot of it was sort of clinical experience, um, going off knowledge of experts and, and these types of things. And only recently have we started to develop, to develop the science of medicine and science of nutrition, but we haven't sort of grounded it with an underlying scientific principle yes we think about biology we think about physiology but those are more just general concepts in science we need to have that underlying principle that says yes okay this is where things sort of started from if we go back to that that will give us grounding to start and now let's figure it out from there yeah yeah it might not provide all the answers or all the cures but at least it gives you a good foundation to start absolutely and if you start from a good foundation, which is what we always preach about feet, start with a good foundation, then you're much le- much more likely to have a, an easier time, I think, and just a smoother process, a smoother journey. Yeah. Um, but that might be a good place to wrap it up, actually. I'm sure we could chat for hours. Well, I know we can. Um, but it would be, would be great to get you on again for another conversation. Um, Love it. We could delve into... Well, all other, all manner of different things. I know there's a lot of different rabbit holes we could go down. Um, but yeah, really appreciate you coming on. And thanks for um, having me. We'll we'll have to line up one maybe in six months or so, and that and, sounds great. Uh, get stuck into some more. Yep, sounds good. Cool. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at thefootcollective.oz 
or on TikTok at The Foot Collective. If you're ready to restore and explore your own natural function, you can check out our range of physical and digital tools at our online store, tfc-shopaus.com and use the code R2E10, that's R the number 2, E10, to save 10%. You'll find all the links in our show notes.